Code Fun Podcast Network. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash sustain. Hello and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source in the long haul. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? And why is my console log not showing the thing I need it to? Today we have one other panelist besides me. Hello, everyone. Who is Justin? Hello, hello. And we have a special guest today from Google's Ospo's office, Maria Cruz. Hello, everyone. So, Maria, you're calling from Oakland, California, where you work with Google. What do you do? I work uh, as a program manager uh, doing community engagement for cloud-native projects. For example, Kubernetes, Knative, and Istio are three projects that come to mind right now. So I, I design experiences and initiatives and overall content strategy to uh, engage communities in, in these different projects and get more people to use the projects and to contribute to them. That's awesome. So as a program manager working with communities, you have a lot of interfaces with open source. Kubernetes is one of the most successful open source projects out there. How did you first get started with open source? I started in open source in April 2013 when I joined Wikimedia which is the social movement behind Wikipedia. I was working in the local chapter, Wikimedia Argentina, as a communications manager. So I was always focusing on telling stories and engaging people uh, in open source. And yeah, so in that, uh, that first project, I, I remember feeling an immense sense of awe at the network of people that anybody can tap on with an idea that you have. So, uh, for example, having mailing lists where you can consult with other people from different parts of the world on an idea that you have that, for example, to run a Wikipedia education program with a specific audience. Has anybody tried that before? How did it work for you? What lessons did you learn? And having a flow back of like five to 10 people responding to you with what was their experience, how students respond to things, how teachers respond to it. That's just one example of this constant flow and communication that is happening. I, I was coming from the oil industry where secrecy is usually a value. There's a lot of expertise, but it's paid for. Uh, and uh, Information is not sure freely because it's one of the assets. But in open source, I just found this well of knowledge that focuses more on having uh, small projects or MVPs that you can test and run quickly and allows you to iterate and, and create the experience that you want. And doing this in collaboration with people from diverse backgrounds was super enriching. Yeah. That's awesome. It must have been quite a quite a jump to go from 
like the gas industry <laughs> into open source. I can imagine that. I, I was just thinking involved. the same thing. It's like, how yeah. did that go? But cool. How did that happen? Yeah. Well, I think for me, it was just mind blowing uh, mm-hmm. to learn. The, the one thing I learned was that I could put my skills to collaborate with others and not just to, to market something. And so I think just having the ability, one of the, of the I think, characteristics that I have is that I'm, I'm very good at reading other people and understanding what they need and how we could collaborate in the future. And so having an ability to communicate effectively with others when that matches with open source, I think it just generates a universe of possibilities to collaborate. Yeah. And just, just having the feeling that you're not alone in the thing that you're doing is one of the most rewarding things that I found in open source. I couldn't, I really couldn't agree more. I mean, for me, it's been a way of getting out of silos. It's actually, I backed into this career. You know, I started out as an academic and then it's sort of kept moving. And all of a sudden I was in open source because that's where my friends were. And I was collaborating with people and working with them in, in the open. And it was so relieving and I would meet them at events and we'd all hang out and go for beers afterwards and they became friends and it was wonderful. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that's happened recently is that we've gone from a lot of people in the industry into being an open source. And now all of a sudden we have this other shift, which is one of the reasons we asked you on this podcast, where everyone in open source is now working from their homes again and unable to collaborate in person. So one of the things I'm curious about is how have you seen the open source movement shift in the past couple of months with COVID-19? Well, one of the characteristic things of open source are events. I think events are important in open source because they bring people closer together and you're able to connect with others, as you were saying before, on a more personal level, because you're not just reading what somebody else writes, but you're able to see their gestures, like all these components that make communication happen. And, and of course, uh, friendships flourish and, and it's so much fun. You're basically working with friends most of the time. I think that we are now having to rethink how we use digital tools to connect online. I've been thinking about this quite a lot because of my work and uh, we are now defining for online experiences and and whatnot. And I was thinking, okay, what is it that needs to change here? Because most of us have have started using digital communications. If we were not born with them, we started using them 15, 20 to 25 years ago. So what is there really to learn? And I, I realized that the way that we use these tools today has pushed us maybe to multitasking and to doing several things at the same time because you can access content on different platforms while you're working and then somebody's chatting with you. And so your attention is divided in these multiple ways. I think one of the things that may have to change is the ability to focus on one thing at a time again, even when you're working remotely. Because I was thinking that one of the most valuable things that events have is that events are the way in which people block time to focus on a specific issue at a given time. 
So when you go, for example, to, if we're talking about Wikimedia, you go to Wikimania, which is the annual gathering for Wikipedians and, and communities and whatnot, you just go and talk about Wikipedia for five days to a city, and that's all you're going to be doing for five days. When you think about yourself in your home, having to attend a digital event, it's likely that you're going to be uh, doing things at the same time as you are watching this. So maybe changing the way that you that we consume digital information is probably going to be important. And I think there's definitely a change in the way we design events uh, for in-person versus digital. So on the, on the producer side of things, not on the consumer, if you're producing an event, you have to narrow down the content and focus it more on the key takeaways that you want people to focus and making sure that the time that they are spending on that is valuable and, and also designing for the experience as well. So making sure that people are connecting one-on-one -on -one with others, making smaller rooms for uh, just social connection and having certain rules that allow people to better connect. Like if it's possible for the participant to have their camera on, to uh, speak through the mic and trying to humanize this connection in these means. I think are a few of the things that need to change. I love that. I, I've been seeing a lot in what you said, which has resonated with me with how my friends and I have adjusted to being in our houses. And one of them is we're focusing a lot better once we turn off Twitter, right? Once we <laughs> stop checking New York Times every few hours and stop, you know, we've called all the friends, right? All a hundred people that needed to be updated, we've called them. And then it's like, oh, what do I do? Well, I'm just going to not look at the news and I'll focus for three days on this project. And exactly. I've seen some wonderful stuff coming out and it's, it's not stuff, it's not productive in the sense of I'm being so productive during COVID-19, but it's much more in the sense of, well, I've been able to look at my life and I realize these things are distracting and these things are focusing. And so you're saying we could also do that for events, which I think is a wonderful message to send out to event organizers. Right now is a really good time to focus for, for most people. I mean, people who have kids, it's really tough right now. Right. Yeah. Um, which brings me an, another question to mind, which is how do we design events that are online to be as diverse as possible? H how does that work? What, what, what role does diversity have when we're all 2D, right? Yeah. I think in terms of diversity and bringing more diversity to projects, I think it's important to make the opportunity available for multiple time zones. So if you are able to have the same event, if the interaction, if the synchronous interaction is important uh, for the event and you're able to have the event twice in the week or twice in the day, enable that so that people from across different time zones can participate. And then, yeah, I think being mindful of the scheduling time is not going to bring, it's not only going to bring people from different geographies, but possibly also allow uh, parents uh, to participate at a time that would be later for them, but maybe the kids are asleep. So having time in mind is, is important. I, what I've seen is that digital events can also be considered as an opportunity in this way, in terms of diversity, because what used to be, for example, a, a very common event 
that we have is a community meetups for different projects. And these usually happen in specific cities uh, across the world. So one example is for Go language. There are so many communities all over the world. This is a, uh, an open source programming language that uh, recently turned 10 years old. And they have events in multiple cities. And so it, events are usually tied to a specific geography. When you make the event virtual, all of a sudden you can get participants from other countries. Uh, and sometimes people who uh, have not heard of the project before or have, or have never attended a meetup are, are starting to show up because it, this is available to them. But the, there wasn't a physical event in their city because there wasn't enough people uh, interested. And so I think digital events in this way are an opportunity. And then narrowing down the content can also be an opportunity to target specific audiences and maybe uh, be able to bring more gender diversity to events uh, or even language diversity. Being able to do events in different languages, tufts, I think is, is another way of making these convenings more diverse. And I think finally, another aspect that I think is important in open source is uh, having diversity of skills. So not all contributions are going to be necessarily code contributions, but there are a lot of contributions that have to do with uh, project management, documentation, uh, design, etc. So having an intention to attract a diverse pool of contributors can be also something that you can achieve through digital events, I think. It's so good to see you focus on languages in particular. That's something that's very dear to my heart. Even though I'm a native English speaker, I've regretted it my whole life. And that's just kind of how it is for me. But language is a huge divider. It's a huge divider. And so it's really cool to hear that, you know, now is a good time to maybe have the Golang Spanish meetup or something, right? I just added a link for remote jobs in Spanish to the awesome remote jobs repo on GitHub, which was really cool to add a language specific job search for people right now. I wish we had Pia on this podcast because she's also Argentinian and Spanish, but she's not here right now. It happens at different times. Yes, that's right, Pia. Yes, I wanted to meet her as well. <laughs> she's awesome. Yeah, she's great. She's great. One of the things I'm curious about is that sort of fortuitousness. Of, oh, you get to meet people in different places. I heard this phrased as right now the coffee, what's the word for it again? Coffee track. The coffee track is canceled, right? And so that's a major problem for a lot of open source projects, right? A lot of open source projects only actually fund their projects by having a coffee track at their conference where they talk to sponsors and be like, listen, if you like that talk, you should, you should you know, give some money. And that's kind of the way the backroom way that some projects get funded today. But the coffee track is so important because it's where you start having human connection. And so I'm curious because you've given a lot of thought to this. How do we foster connection and growth on a friendship level or on a project level between people remotely? Like, can it happen over Zoom? Are there things we should do to make connection more possible? How can we garden the landscape to allow that? So when it comes to fostering connections online, there has to be a lot of intentional design of the event 
from the facilitator of the meeting. And so when I talk about facilitation, I mean the person who has the rhythm of the conversation, they have the timing, they know the topics they, they have to go through and they have to get the group to do its best thinking. And sometimes they also have to make those connections that are so meaningful in open source. They have to make those connections happen. And so when we are faced with a reality where we can only meet online and digitally, you have to build in the time to just get to know each other on a social level, on, a, on smaller groups, maybe with some kind of fun activity or icebreakers as they are called. And that gets you to talk about something else that is not work that allows you to connect with someone else. And this can be something funny that happened to you or a place that you like to travel to. And this is the thing with, that I see with generating these and replicating these online and digitally. It's awkward. And ever since I started working in, in open source and going to conferences, I realized that one has to become okay with being awkward. That's where the growth happens, right? That's, that's where you actually get to be human and connect to each other. Yeah. And also a lot of the people that I met in open source conferences are louder when they are uh, typing or texting. Uh, or writing down the responses. A lot of people are very shy. And so making conversations sometimes in those circles can be really hard, even if you're in person. So that's where I learned that it's okay to be awkward and just accept, you know, like, this is how I feel right now. This is kind of awkward, but I would really like to get to know this person and understand what is their motivation or what they are interested in. And so I'm just going to kind of like, sit with the silence or with like the random staring at the things around and just kind of create a situation where the other person feels safe and comfortable enough where they will open up. I think that feeling of, okay, this is going to be awkward, but I'm just going to try and get this to happen. It's, it's very similar to what I feel now when I have to replicate a social interaction online and you are proposing an activity or, or like a random uh, silly uh, instruction so that people, you know, show themselves in a way that is not necessarily through work. And yeah, it, it is going to be awkward, but you have to, I think you, you have to overcome that feeling in order to connect with others. Yeah. I really resonate with that as well. It took me years to realize that the people I meet at meetups are not the same as the people who I hang out with or like outside of the tech world. Right. I mean, I, for a long time, I, yeah, yeah, it's, it's very, very different for a long time. I grew up, I grew up in a passive aggressive new England family where like we all talk about things privately in certain ways. And so I projected that onto everyone I met at tech conferences and everyone hated me and didn't want to talk to me until I realized, Oh, maybe it just takes them a few minutes to say more, more personal things. And, that's probably all just me. And once I did that, I was like, oh, okay, great. And I, I have the opposite problem. I'm, I'm louder than, than most people, right? But, oh, you? <laughs> <laughs> but learning that and, and le letting space be awkward is, is so important. I've been hosting a few calls recently. And one of the things I have to do during this time is have five minutes at the beginning and five minutes at the end just to allow stupid things to happen. And allow people to just talk about their day and the weather and what's going on. And that's been really useful for social cohesion 
and buy-in. You know, people feel like they're not on a Zoom call, but they're on a call with their friends or their collaborators, which has been super great. On this podcast, some of the best conversations happen after we say goodbye, which is a major perennial problem. Yeah. Which we're starting to turn into other podcasts. Sometimes if they just go long enough, we're just going to put that out as a bonus. We have one of those coming up with Dave Gandy soon, which is going to yep. be great. This, this week, number 33, baby. Cool. So it's already out then, but. Well, no, Friday, but. Anyway. Well, it will have been out. Yes, you're right. Yeah. We're yes. talking like time travel. Oh, shoot. Yeah. Woo. Okay. Wait, I have a question. So being in an OSPO, you get to work with great organizations like CNCF, Linux Foundation. Do you work with Megan on, or do you work under her team or how big is your OSPO? <laughs> My OSPO. I, <laughs> OSPO has different teams. I would have to pull up the org chart, but Megan is on the outreach team. So mm-hmm. she manages a different team and I am on the program development team. For aspiring OSPO, for those who don't know what OSPO, it's Open Source Program Office. It's just like the, the short version of saying it. Do you have any advice for those who are aspiring to be program managers in OSPOs? I would say you have to be really passionate about a, a specific area that you're interested in, in open source. So for example, my area is community engagement. Like I, I know how to do this really well, like uh, designing a content strategy and driving engagement with it. Other people are focusing on events and other people are program managers for specific projects. So I would say that if you're really passionate about a specific open source project or an area within open source that you're really good at, for example, there's other people in, in the larger office focus on documentation, uh, other people focus on overall communications and uh, uh, telling stories about open source. If any of these areas are really passionate, I would say focusing on that and having your own approach uh, and your own processes to work is, yeah, would be my advice. And then just, it depends because like uh, open roles, open positions vary throughout time. So it depends on whatever opportunity is available at the moment. But what I've seen is that we'll work in collaboration and we rely on other people's part of their work. And so that's why having a specific area that you're interested in and honing in on that is probably the most useful advice that I can give. Yeah. Thank you. That's great. One follow-up to that. So have you worked in other OSPOs or is this the only one you've worked in so far? So far, the only one. Yeah. So okay. oh, it, it's the first time that I'm going back to for-profit in 11 years. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. That really helped me. Yeah. What is uh, Google's OSPO during, doing during this? Why am I just ineloquent today? I don't know what's going on. Okay. So what, what is Google's OSPO's? <laughs> I don't know what's going on. All right. Sorry. <laughs> so what is Google's OSPO during this? <laughs> All right. I think it's the late coffee. Do, and like, do I'm you, not normally. Do you want me to take this one? I think I know what you no. want to say. Yeah. Yeah. You, you do it. You do it. Do it. So what is Google's OSPO up to during these times of the COVID-19 coronavirus? 
So a lot of what we're doing now is figuring out how we reimagine the different engagements we wanted to have. So basically all the things I've been talking about is a lot of what OSPO is doing is trying to reimagine in which ways are we going to engage with uh, our key stakeholders, given that a lot of the events that we were looking forward to participate in are being postponed or cancelled or uh, reformatted to be digital. So I think a, a lot of efforts are going into understanding how we can put our best foot forward and continue to collaborate and support different uh, open source communities in these times. So I know that Google has come out with some resources to help out events which have been canceled or had to move to virtual, as well as for open source projects. For instance, they've made their enterprise tools free until January 1st. Uh, can you talk a bit more about the actual resources that Google's offering to the open source community and how people can get involved and use them? Google has made available the enterprise suite of uh, products at no cost, I believe until July 1st, that was the last time I saw it. Yeah, and so the virtual events guide that we published is designed to help open source community members make sense of all the tools that are available to organize digital events. Because as many people may have seen in the last few months, we probably came to know of at least five video conferencing softwares alone. And so what are all these different options? How can they best help you? How can they best support your cause? And how can you use them? That's what the uh, virtual events guide is for. And so it, it basically, it takes you from an initial exercise of setting goals for your event and understanding if what you need is an event or maybe you need to produce a different kind of outlet. For example, if you don't need simultaneous experience, maybe you can record a demo or write some documentation uh, or produce something that is going to be more cost effective. If you do need an event, then the guide walks you through all the different steps from registration, what kind of software do you need to use, what kind of video conference software options are there. If you need to do video streaming, what are your options? And then it also gives advice on how to make the most of your event uh, with practical tips like breaking up rooms, creating different activities for social connection. So the guide focuses on four of the most uh, typical events in open source, which are developer summits, community meetups or panels, workshops, and working group meetings. And it outlines the different roles that you need for each of those and what resources you need to have in mind. So it's a very it's a comprehensive guide. and it allows you to understand how you can use the tools and what are the different steps that you need to go through to make the most of them. That is so awesome. Thank you so much. And thank you for working on that and getting it out there. Everyone who runs events will appreciate it. I've already used the Google Suites enterprise stuff, which has been really useful. I set that up for false responders as well. So that's been great. So thank you. Maria, if people were interested in talking to you particularly about this thing or about what it's like to work with the Wikimedia Foundation or to come from Argentina and end up in Oakland, where can they find you online? I'm on Twitter, 
my Twitter handle is very, very, it's as Spanish as it gets, because it has a double R. It's at Marianarra underscore. So, yeah. How do you spell that? M-A-R-I-A-N-A-R-R-A underscore. Excellent. I would try and pronounce it, but my troll dars have just never been that good. This doesn't work, but cool. Awesome. Bueno. <laughs> Muchas gracias. And now it's time for Spotlight, where we talk about really cool projects that we had. Mine is going to be the Open Knowledge Foundation. Just like Maria got started with Wikimedia, I got started with the Open Knowledge Foundation. That was the first big open conference I ever went to. It was in Berlin. Some thugs had beaten me up the week before and I had to wear sunglasses the entire time and I felt super weird, but I probably fit in very well. So it was great. Everything was open and they do awesome work. Let's check out the Open Knowledge Foundation. I think they mainly do work in Europe, but they also have a lot of offshoots in the States. And Justin, what is your spotlight? I was having trouble trying to figure out which one I was going to use, but I just found out today one of our longtime publishers on the CodeFund platform alligator.io was recently acquired by DigitalOcean. They are a front-end web development articles knowledge base and really, really happy for them and just really, really just awesome. Awesome to hear that they got chomped. That's great. And Maria. Oh, that was a good pun, man. Thanks. Thanks. I worked on it. I spent nights thinking alligator, alligator, what can I do? Maria, what's yours? The project I would like to put in the spotlight is Sulip, an open source tool that it a, offers a messaging service and is really great for uh, creating engagement in times of remote work and collaboration. I recently learned about it from a blog post that my friend uh, Srishti Sethi uh, wrote on how she's using it for the programs that she's managing for Wikimedia Technical Outreach. So, yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for that resource. Again, because it's yours and it's great. So... Thank you so much for being on the podcast. That's it for now. Everyone, go forth and multiply events. Yeah. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, with enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage options, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price that you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash sustain.